So Matthew chapter 14, we pick up in verse 22. And Matthew writes, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side when he sent the multitudes away. And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. And Now, we need to understand that we actually have a better understanding uh, than the disciples do at this point of who Jesus truly is. And, uh, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the details of this story, the events, but the disciples, they've never seen anything like this. They've never heard of anything like this. And so they're really freaked out. And so you just want to put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a minute. Just imagine, right, what it must have been like. We can't be too hard on them that they were afraid thinking that Jesus was a ghost. But verse 27 says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and be Beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And Jesus said, you call that a prayer? No, that's not what it says. It says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. So if you're new to Calvary Chapel, if this is a, maybe the first time you're with us, um, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings. And our heart, our desire is to learn everything we can about Jesus and then apply what we've learned to our life in order that we might have a closer, more intimate walk with Him. Now, two great events in Jesus' life and ministry right, come one right after another. The feeding of the 5,000 not counting uh, women and children. We looked at it last week where Jesus fed 5,000 with just five barley loaves and two small fish. And again, that was the only miracle other than Jesus' resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. So the Lord really wants us to take notice of that. But then right on the hills of Jesus feeding the 5,000, we have this event where Jesus is walking on the water and he does it to teach his disciples, to teach us, right, something very important. He has some very important lessons for us. And as I've said, 
This event comes right on the hills of Jesus feeding the 5,000, not including the women and children, with the five loaves, kind of like pita bread. I mean, really small, not like Wonder Bread. And then two small fish. And as a result of that miracle, the people, they rightly conclude that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And in John's Gospel, John tells us, John 6, 15, says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. When Jesus perceived that the intent of the people was to make him king, take him by force, Matthew tells us that Jesus does three things, verses 22 through 23. We read, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he went, uh, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So the first thing he does is he causes the 12 disciples to get into a boat and he sends them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Secondly, after sending the disciples away, Jesus sends the multitude away. And you might remember before the miracle of feeding the 5,000, you know, the disciples came to Jesus and said it was time to send the people away. Now we see it's truly time to send the people away. It's the right time to send them away to their home and villages. And then the third thing that Jesus does, Jesus uh, went up on the mountain by himself in order to meet with God in prayer. There's a lot that's going on in Jesus' life. Um, and and uh, during this time, a lot going on in his life and his ministry. There's this great transition that's taking place where Jesus is beginning to pull away from the, the multitudes, the masses, and begin to pour into his disciples, you know, important lessons before his crucifixion. And there's this tremendous um, amount of hostility that's just this upswell of hostility that's raising up during this final year of his ministry. So he's taking time to get alone with the Father here uh, in our story to pray. And it's also very important to notice in verse 22, Jesus' command given to his disciples when he sends them away. He commanded them to go by boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Right? He doesn't say, go halfway across the sea where you're going to sink, freeing me up to find 12 better disciples than you guys. It's not what he says. Jesus tells them to go to the other side. And he tells them to go before him to the other side, indicating that he would be joining them at some time during their journey. And in Matthew uh, 14, 24, we read, But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. To the disciples' credit, right? They proceed to obey Jesus' command at once. And in obeying his command to go across the Sea of Galilee, they find themselves in a considerable storm there on the Sea of Galilee. They're right in the middle of the lake when these events occur. Now, again, the Sea of Galilee, it's actually a freshwater lake, right? It's not a sea. It's called a sea because 
it's a pretty big body of water, especially there in Israel. The Sea of Galilee is 8 miles wide, 13 miles long, and it's right in the middle of the sea when the storm comes up. They're right in the middle, right? So when this storm comes up, uh, they're fighting it on two sides of them, before them and behind them, the closest dry land is six and a half miles away. And then on other two sides, either side of them, right and left, the closest dry land, the closest shore is four miles away. And I don't care how good of a swimmer you are. I mean, that's a pretty good swim. And, uh, well, we're given insight into the severity of this storm. In verse 24, it says that they were being tossed by the waves. Okay, so here the storm, uh, it's a, here's a storm that's tossing boats around like a cork floating through the rapids of the Truckee River. You know, maybe like a, a kid, you know, how he picks up a beach ball and he tosses it around on the beach. You know, that's what the disciples find themselves in the middle of, just this tremendous storm. Now, these storms are not unusual on the Sea of Galilee, not then, not today. Um, I've read accounts of waves 10 to 15 foot high on the Sea of Galilee. And since waves are measured from the back of the wave, a 10 or 15 foot high wave, you know, it has a 15, 20 foot face, right? And, uh, you know, I've been out surfing on 10 foot days. They're big waves. They're big waves. And having a 15 to 20 foot face, that would be like having a two-story building crashing over the, uh, the sides of your boat. You're just filling up your little boat, you know. I don't know. Maybe you remember when you were a kid going to the high school pool, you know, climbing up. You worked up barely enough courage. Okay, you're going to climb up the high dive. And you got up there on the top of that 10-foot high dive. And uh, even though it was only 10 feet high, when you were at the top, it looked like it was 50 feet high. I mean, that kind of, if you can remember that kind of uh, experience, that's probably what the disciples were, you know, facing, is they're facing these 10, 15-foot waves, right? They're enormous. And uh, these kind of storms, you know, where these big waves would become crashing in the boats, it wasn't uncommon, but you would want to avoid the Sea of Galilee on these types of days. And then in verse 25, it says, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. By the time Jesus comes to them walking on the sea, not only is their boat being tossed, you know, being thrown all about, right? But Jesus comes to them, it says, in the fourth watch of the night. So somewhere between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning, Jesus comes to them. It's springtime, right? This story takes place in the springtime. So it's dark. It's really dark at this time of, of the, the morning. They can't see anything. And so personally, I think... You know, Jesus came closer to 3 than he did at 6 o'clock. It's, it's dark. 
The waves are big, right? Their boat is being tossed about. These waves are crashing over the sides of their boat. Their boat's filling up with water. You know, the disciples are wet. They're probably really pretty cold. And the wind is contrary to them. So that means they can't hoist the sail and make it to shore very quickly. All progress that's being made on the Sea of Galilee at this time, in order to obey Jesus' command given to them, all progress is being made at the oars, right? They're rowing for their lives at this time. They've been out on the sea for at least nine hours at this time also. After a very long day, excuse me, after a very long day of ministry the day before, after actually weeks of ministry where they've been going throughout all of Galilee, sharing the gospel and being used by God to minister to the people. And by the time they find themselves in this situation, right, they're probably already just exhausted, right? Right now, probably physically speaking, the situation is just miserable. I mean, these guys are spent, and they're stretched as far as they can uh, be stretched. The, the demands of the situation are just stretching them to a breaking point, probably. Since storms in lives, in our lives, are inevitable, this passage gives us, as Christians, several important truths that we need to remember in the midst of trials. That's what the lessons are all about from this passage, right? This passage of Scripture, it talks about just its lessons that we need to be aware of as we face trials. Nobody escapes the storms like, like this storm as a believer, as a Christian. No, no one escapes boat being tossed about, right? A life being tossed back and forth by circumstances. When it seems like you're just at the mercy of everything around you, it's inevitable. Those things are going to come into our life. That's the reality of life. And God knows it. So that's why this passage is included in the Bible for us, so that we can be able to maintain a right perspective when we're facing various uh, and severe trials, right? So there's eight things that, if you're taking notes, eight things you might want to uh, <clears throat> jot down that we're going to learn from this passage. First of all, it's very important that each of us understand that this account teaches us that there are storms in the Christian life even when you're right in the middle of God's will for your life. Unfortunately, it's, it's true, right? It's one of the things that this account teaches us. There are storms in the Christian life, and you can be 100% in the middle of God's will for your life and experience storms. Storms are not always because of disobedience, right? Um, it does happen. You do have uh, storms in your life because of disobedience. You know, Jonah is a case in point. 
But that's a different sermon than what we have before us today, right? The disciples here are in the middle of this fierce storm because of their obedience to the command of the Lord in their life. And the reason that this is important to me is because I can be prone, right? I don't think I'm alone in this, but I can be prone to think that the will of God is something that carries with it some form of immunity from trials and tribulation. You know, I can think that obedience to the will of God in my life should result in clear skies, smooth sailing, you know, a trouble-free life. Okay, you know, maybe there might be a little, you know, rain, you know, maybe a gentle breeze, uh, but certainly uh, nothing more than a gentle breeze. You know, uh, never a major storm like this one. Um, yeah, not when you're in the will of God. That's the way I think. But here the disciples are right in the middle of the will of God for their life, and this storm hits them in the middle of God's will, and it's because they're being obedient to his command. You know, I have a tendency to think that the will of God is something like, you know, this is my idea of how it should be. Sitting in your recliner, you know, eating as much pizza as you can stuff in your face, having Sundays, ice cream Sundays all day, never gaining any weight as a result of it, of course, no ill effects, drinking Diet Coke, watching college football all day on New Year's Day, and my wife not complaining about me doing that. In fact, the will of God would include her to sit next to me and watch football. Can I get an amen out of you, Tina? No. But, you know, that's kind of my idea of the will of God. You know, it can be something that's effortless. It should be easy. You know, it should be relaxing, enjoyable. You know, no bumps in the road. But that's not always the case, right? The will of God is not always easy living in cotton candy. And if I go into a Christian life and somehow I have this conception in my mind that that's the will of God, you know, that the will of God is some easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy type of life, then I'm going into a Christian life with a, a misconception and that will result in a major, major disappointment. It'll result in major discouragement in my life. And the problem is with believing that there aren't these kind of storms in our lives when we enter into God's will, because there are these kinds of storms, but the problem is when we find ourselves in one of these overwhelming storms of life, because we have the wrong idea, we have the misconception about the Christian life, when we find ourselves in this terrible storm, in the moment we need to have confidence in God the very most, we lose confidence in God because of that misconception. We lose confidence that we're in God's will for our life, and we lose confidence that He is for us in the situation. The reality is that there are storms in the Christian life. 
even boat-tossing types of storms. Jesus said to his disciples, John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're going to face difficult times, but don't worry. You know what? I'm bigger than anything the world uh, has to throw at you. When you look at the book of Acts, it testifies to us that there are storms in the Christian life. Look at every one of the men and women in the book of Acts. You know, look at what they went through for the advancement of the gospel in their day and age. One life-threatening storm after another. And as you read through the New Testament, you see so many letters written to Christians, you know, God using other Christians to write these letters that they're in the middle of a storm, right? They're in some of the fiercest storms you can imagine, and God uses them in the middle of that storm to encourage other believers who are facing tremendous storms. All of it. All of it while they're in the will of God. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. No one likes to hear that suffering can be according to the will of God. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome. He said, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which we shall which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, 16, 18. I mean you think about Jesus. He's the standard of everything in our lives. And we'll even pray, Lord, I want to be like you, right? So did Jesus suffer in the Father's will? Well, yes, of course he did, right? He suffered mightily in the Father's will in order to accomplish something mightier still, right? We should never come to the conclusion whether we are or are not in God's will, solely based on the fact that we are or are not in a storm of life, right? We can experience great storms in God's will. And this is very, very important to know, to understand as we walk with the Lord. Because of this, we must never disobey God's command in order to attempt to escape the storm, right? It would have been very easy for the disciples while they were in the middle of the storm after all the progress that they had made, which has been very little, right? Because of their progress that was being made at the, at the oars, they were rowing against the storm. Verse 24 tells us that the wind was contrary to them. The storm was against them. It would have been very easy to give into that temptation and just pack it in. You know, just give up. Quit in the midst of the storm. Accept defeat. Throw up their hands and say, there's nothing I can do. And just let the storm drive them 
wherever it wanted to take them. But they didn't do that. It's very commendable that they were determined to remain obedient to the last command, the last instructions they had received from the Lord. Right? Jesus told us to take the boat to the other side. Whatever happens, that is how he's going to find us, by taking the boat to the other side. So too, in a similar way, we're not to give up when the storms of life become extraordinarily hard. Also, you want to note, this would be the second thing. Sometimes there are reasons for storms that we don't know anything about. Sometimes there are reasons for storms in our lives that only God knows the reasons why. Very often, the storms that God allows into our lives, He allows them in to protect us from an even greater danger. Why did Jesus rush the disciples onto that boat to get them to the other side of the lake so quickly? And if you look at the first word in verse 22, the very first word in the verse is immediately. No sooner do the disciples finish gathering up the fragments from the feeding the 5,000, does Jesus say, I have to get these guys out of here right now. I know a storm is coming out there on the Sea of Galilee, but what's developing here? The people that are wanting to force me to be their king right now, that's going to be a greater danger to the disciples than anything they're going to meet out there on that lake. So I have to get the disciples out of here for their own safety. And that's what Jesus does. It's interesting to notice in verse 22, it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And the Greek word translated there, made, it's a very strong word in the original language. It's very forceful. In fact, it means to compel, to force, right? Jesus is urgently forcing, compelling the disciples to get on the boat, to get them out of their current situation, right? We need to understand the, the disciples at this point in time, they have a very immature understanding of who Jesus is. I mean, they're growing in their understanding, just like we all are. But at this point in time, they don't quite get it. And as Jesus, right, uh, they have this immature uh, understanding that they have of Jesus. You know, they had an even less, lesser understanding of Jesus, as I said, than we do, right? In particularly, the reason he came into the world, right? They think he came into the world just to establish, you know, a physical kingdom. And their, their understanding of Jesus is so immature, so lacking at this point in time. You know, they're regularly arguing about who's going to be greater in the kingdom, right? And these guys are grown men. I'm going to be greater. No, you're not going to be greater. I'm going to be greater. Nuh-uh. I'm going to be greater. I said it first. No way. Jesus loves me more. This is the type of arguments that they were engaging in. Even after Jesus' bodily resurrection, before he ascends into heaven, Acts chapter 1, 
Jesus is talking to the disciples about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they interrupt him and ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of heaven? That was what there was, they were concerned about. They weren't even listening to what Jesus was saying. After three and a half years, their understanding of the kingdom was, again, something that was just physical. They didn't get it. And Jesus knows, given the disciples' eagerness for him to establish his kingdom, if the disciples would have been present at the time that this crowd makes this very strong, you know, um, bread-driven push to make Jesus king, which, by the way, was outside of God's will by at least a year. But if the disciples were present while the people tried to force Jesus to become king, they would have probably joined in with the crowd and would have made things, you know, just a mess. What the crowd is trying to do in forcing Jesus to be king after feeding the 5,000 is very dangerous. Right? Imagine if they were successful. You know, imagine them saying, we acknowledge, Jesus, that you are, in fact, the promised Messiah, and we want you to be our king right now because you've fed us. Immediately, news of that event would get to the religious leaders. News of that would get to Rome. You know, and everything that Jesus had said and done up to this point you know, Jesus would have been thought of as just coming into the world to merely, merely establish this physical kingdom. How misdirected would that be? That that's all that Jesus came to do. Jesus came into the world, first of all, to establish a spiritual kingdom. They're on the verge, these people, they're on the verge of derailing how all mankind and history as a whole will view the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And clearly the disciples are not ready to be part of a trial of this magnitude. So Jesus makes them get into the boat and leave. Now, I've been walking with the Lord for a little bit now. I've been a Christian for 42 years. And I admit I'm not the smartest Christian out there by a long shot. But I've picked up a few things along the way. When I was a younger Christian, my thoughts regarding trials was really more along the lines, it's something that you got to just survive. You just got to survive them, right? You know, I thought that trials were something that God allowed into your life in order to give you an opportunity to prove your love for Him, right? And the way you pr proved your love for Him was you endured the trial, you just kind of muscle through, right? And if at the end of the trial you were still walking with him, then you succeeded in proving your love for God. They were just trials in my mind. They were just something to be survived. But as time went on and I grew in my understanding as a Christian, there were times that the Lord would speak to my heart and say that I was better off in the trial than I would be outside of the trial that the trial was there for my protection. The third thing we want to notice about trials in our lives is that, you know what, causes us to slow down. It causes us to slow down. 
It's in the middle of the trial that I realize that decisions that I'm making now are critical. I need to take time to slow down and think things through. What effect is it going to have? In the midst of the trial, because things can seem out of control, I have to slow down, right? Just so I can get the proper perspective, so I can get my bearings. When the Lord puts us in the middle of a great boat-tossing trial, one of the things that um, you know it does immediately is it humbles us. It humbles us, and it tends to drive us to the Lord. And I don't think it matters how close you're walking with the Lord when that trial comes into your life, especially great trials. You know what? It forces you to draw closer to the Lord. It forces you to seek a more intimate relationship with the Lord. You know what? It's a more intimate relationship it forces you into than what you might have otherwise sought out had it been something other than that severe of a storm. It forces you to slow down. It forces you to cry out to the Lord. It forces you to call out to Him, to draw close to Him. It forces you to cling to Him. And I know God has allowed uh, me to go into dark, dark storms so that it would cause me to slow down, right? To draw close to Him, to seek His heart for His direction for my life, to think through and discover the things that are truly important in life, right? To draw super close to the Lord because there is another storm that's coming my way. You know, this storm oftentimes can prepare me for the next storm. And God in His amazing grace and His abundant love leads me into this storm so that I'll be ready for the next storm that's ahead the next temptation that's coming my way in just a matter of hours or a matter of days or maybe weeks, right? He knows I'm not ready for that storm, for that trial that's coming close. But in the middle of this storm, in the middle of this trial, I'm staying close to God. And I don't have, a pro, uh, you know, I don't have the strength to get involved in another situation, right? It's all I can do just to hang on in this one, and keep my head down and just hang on to the Lord. And, and the trial that I'm in the middle of currently becomes so valuable to keep me focused on my walk with the Lord while the greater danger, the greater storm passes me by. I think that's the way the Lord works in our life. He's up to so much in our lives. You know, so much that we're not even aware of, you know, the things that he's doing. He's working out and he's managing so many issues within our lives all at once. And that was what he was doing in our lives. And in the, well, that's what he was doing in the, in the lives of the disciples here in our story. Just managing and working things out. Jesus was protecting them from something far worse, which would have ended up very badly. Sometimes, in the middle of a storm, it might be helpful to consider, you know, what kind of greater storm, right, is this storm protecting me from? 
Because often that's the case. The storms of life we encounter as we walk with the Lord are accomplishing a work that we don't even realize. Right? And that's why we must never choose to disobey God's word in order to escape a trial or a storm that we might be facing. We need to always remember that there's something harder in life than God's will. And God's will for our lives can be hard. But the harder thing for our lives than God's will is being outside of God's will for our life. That's ultimately the hardest thing. You know, just again, just read the book of Jonah and you'll understand what I'm talking about. The, the fourth thing that we need to remember is while you're in the storm, Jesus never loses sight of us, right? In Mark's account of these events, we read, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. The disciples were never out of the Lord's sight, right? Sometimes in the middle of a great storm, we can be tempted to think, you know, that we're, uh, that, he's, that he's not paying attention, that, that we're lost out of his sight, that he doesn't care. All of those things, by the way, aren't true. You know, do you understand? Do you realize God never loses his car keys, right? You know what? He never forgets where he put his glasses. He never misplaces those important items he doesn't want to forget. He never loses one of his own. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand for my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. One in what? One in holding on to the things that are theirs, right? And that's you and me. There's nothing more secure, more sure, than Jesus and the Father holding on to you and I. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalm 73, 23, it says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. The idea of God taking me by the right hand and leading me when I'm facing difficulty or when I have a big decision to make, the idea of him taking me by the right hand and leading me as a son right, is such a tremendous comfort to me. How close is the Lord to each one of us? He's holding us by the right hand. In the storm, we're tempted to think, where are you, God, in all of this? You know, why have you left me all alone here? Again, it's not true. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's so close. He's holding each of us by our hand. Also, while in a great storm, we need to remember Jesus never ceases to pray for us, right? I'm certain he was praying for his disciples while he was up there on the mountain because the Bible tells us that is what he was and is given to, 
Romans 8.34 says, Who is he who condemns? Well, there are a lot who condemns. The devil condemns, right? But Jesus never condemns. It says, Who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Jesus prays for us. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he, Jesus, ever lives to make intercession for them. Not only does Jesus pray for us, Jesus is right now praying for us. I don't think we have any clue in regards to the value and influence that Jesus, that his prayers, the prayers that are offered on our behalf day and night. I don't think we have any, you know, idea of the influence those prayers have in our lives. You know, I don't know of anything that comforts me in the middle of a trial more than to know that I'm being prayed for. The prayers that are being offered for me on behalf of my friends and behalf of my family, you know, my church family. It's so very comforting to me. But more comforting than all of that is to know that Jesus himself, who is at the right hand of the Father, who is one with the Father, is praying for me. And they're in agreement, right? I'm going to make it through. It's going to be okay. Jesus is interceding for me. He's interceding for you at this very moment in time. Not only has Jesus not lost us or lost sight of us, but he's engaged in our lives and is present in our lives so much so that he knows what it is that we are in need of, the things that we're facing so that he can pray in light of our current need. You know, I, I don't care how long you've known this, how many times you've heard this, but I want to encourage you, let it bless your heart right now like you've never heard it before. That Jesus is praying for you, he's for you, he's engaged in your life. Let it bless your heart enough to, to just understand that you're being lifted up in prayer to the Father by your Savior. Another thing we want to notice, the fifth thing, Jesus will come to us in the storm and bring an end to the storm of our lives. Storms do come and they do end, but he comes to you, right, and brings an end just at the right time. You know, have you ever noticed, maybe it's just me, I don't know, but have you ever noticed God's timing doesn't seem to be on the same timetable as ours? You know, I mean, we're not watching the same clock. You know, I think time's running out. Lord, what are you waiting on, you know? Time's right now, especially in the storm. When I start seeing the storm clouds beginning to form, you know, that's when I usually start crying out, Lord, help right? But his timing is slightly different than mine. I want storms to end very quickly in my life. But again, he comes at just the right time to bring an end to that storm. He's never too late. He's never too late. 
He's never in a hurry. He's always on time. And we need to remember, he's working out many things all at the same time in our lives through these storms. He's at work in the storms, getting lots of stuff done in our lives. We mustn't forget there are reasons for the storms in our lives. There are reasons for every storm that happens in our lives. You know, Jesus doesn't just uh, look at things and say, you know, okay, they've probably suffered enough. You know, I'll bring the storm to an end now. That's not the way he does it. He looks at things and says, okay, now they've learned what I've needed them to learn. I've created in them what he or she has needed. Now's the right time to bring the storm to an end. I mean, you think about Paul, one of the heroes of the faith, you know, just one of the, you know, the strongest and greatest servants of the Lord. And you look at his life as you read through the book of Acts, and you think to yourself, wow, you know, Paul, he was a beast. He was amazing. How did he do all of that? Paul's an example to us how we're to walk with and serve the Lord. And of course, it was the Lord that strengthened him to accomplish all that he accomplished. But there was a time in Paul's ministry, there was a time in his life where it looked like God was too late for him. And it looked, it looked like Paul wasn't going to survive the circumstances that he was facing. And he wrote about it to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. What Paul is saying is, this was a life-tossing storm that I was in, and I didn't think I was going to survive it. This is the storm that will probably usher us into the presence of God. And Paul goes on to say, and this is what he learned through it all, and it's what we need to learn too. He goes on to say that we should, the storm was there, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raised the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You know, it's the same lesson that each of us need to learn. We need to trust in the Lord that he's going to bring us through the storm. He's going to bring it to an end, you know, and he's going to do it just at the right time. But, and the sixth thing, we also need to understand he won't bring the storm to an end before the storm teaches me what he has intended it to teach me. You know, I need to remember the storm is teaching me something that I might uh, not otherwise learn. What was the storm teaching the disciples in our story? They actually got the lesson. And it's recorded for us in verse 33. Truly, they confessed, you are the Son of God. Right? The storm, uh, that storm, and Jesus being with them, how he handled the storm, did more for the disciples in terms of recognizing who Jesus uh, truly is. 
it penetrated more deeply into their lives, into their hearts, the truth that Jesus truly is the Son of God and God the Son. And the same is true for us. The storms that we go through have a purpose in our lives, right? It puts us in places where we're powerless, where, we, where we're faced with circumstances that are humanly impossible to overcome. Then God injects himself into our storm, into our life in the midst of the storm. And just as we begin to experience his faithfulness in the storm, his love, his power, his wisdom in the midst of that storm. And when it happens, uh, what happens is we come to a greater understanding of his ability to meet us in any circumstance of life. It, it enhances our understanding to understand that he's greater and stronger than any storm that we may ever face in life, right? Nothing's too hard for him. And this is something, this kind of understanding, it's something you can read about in the Bible, you know, but until you experience it in your life, until you experience his power to save and his ability to see you through the storms of life, well, you know what? It's just black ink on white paper as you read about it in the Bible. You know what? That's all it is. That's all it ever is going to be. It's not until you go through the storm and are delivered by him from the storm does it become real in your life. Jesus doesn't, you know, well, you know, you just think about the shallowness and the lack of depth that would be in our relationship with the Lord apart from trials. You know, someone once said, you know, you show me a Christian who hasn't been in a trial, you know, been through trials. You show me a Christian that hasn't been through storms. You show me a Christian that hasn't been in the fire, and I'll show you a shallow Christian. You know, that's true. Storms in our life, the trials that God entrusts to us is always in order to deepen our walks with him, right? Always in order to deepen our understanding of him and his love for us. The seventh thing we need to remember is that his word will have the final say in every storm in our life. Again, I don't care how many times you've heard that in your life. It should always impact our lives right when we hear it. When Jesus tells his disciples to go to the other side, because he had said it, right, they're going to get to the other side. His word has the final say in their situation. His word has the final say, not the storm. Even the disciples and what they thought would happen in the midst of the storm, that didn't have the final say. It was his word. When he commands us to do something, he stands behind his word. And he makes sure his word will have the final say. He gives us the ability to accomplish that thing he commands. 
You know what I learned years ago? When people encounter difficulties in life, when they're going through storms, you know, they'll seek you out for, for counseling. And I learned, you know, something about that situation. When someone comes to us for counseling, do you know what they don't want and they don't need to hear? You know, they don't need to hear what I think. And they don't want to hear what you think. What they need is for us to take them to the Word of God so that they can hear from the Lord, so they can re receive encouragement and strength from Him. The Word of God is the greatest thing we have to give people who are hurting, who are being you know, battered about by the storms of life. When we understand and convey to others that God stands behind every promise he makes to his people in the word, you know what? You look at the word of God a little differently. He stands behind every word. God will never allow any storm in our life to make him a liar. It's never going to happen. It won't happen in your life. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. You know what? It just won't ever happen, and you can bank on it. When we come to the end of our life, our witness will be to this next generation that God has always been faithful to his word in our life. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means pass away. You can bank on it. Not only will his word outlive my life and yours, not only will his word outlive the storms, that you may be presently going through, but his word is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. It's going to live on into eternity, and it will have the final say in regards to everything in our lives. And it's good for us to be reminded of this. The eighth thing, and, and this is the final thing, Peter's little venture of faith, which is only recorded in Matthew's version of this story, right? Right? It reminds us what we're to do when we have a failure of faith in the storm. I love Peter. I mean, he's one of the disciples that I, I uh, mostly you know, relate to. I'm probably more like him than any of the other disciples. You know, Peter's impulsive, right? He's very impulsive. Whatever comes into his mind, he's either going to say it or do it. And it reminds me of somebody. You know, and I'm not putting them down. You know, it just, it, it just reminds me of me. And it reveals to me, you know, that there's still a lot of growth that's needed in Peter's life as I look at it. But it reminds me there's a lot of growth needed in my life. But this is Peter, right? Pete, uh, Jesus comes walking to them on the water, verse 27 and following. And Jesus says, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter's response is, Lord, if it's you, or the idea is really more uh, of the sense of, since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. I, I love Peter's heart because what Peter is saying is, Lord, I want to be where you are. I want to be doing the things you're doing, Jesus. So command me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. So Peter climbs out of the boat, and he starts walking on the water. And, and then what happens? 
right? All of a sudden, Peter realizes, man, I'm walking on water. And then what happened? Think about it for a second. Yeah. Think about it just for a second. Okay? Why is he walking on water? Why is he walking on water? It's because Jesus gave the command for Peter to come to him walking on the water. And all of a sudden it dawns on Peter, man, I'm walking on water. And he starts to look around, right? And he sees these huge waves all around him. And he gets his eyes off of Jesus. And he puts his eyes on the circumstance. And he begins to doubt the word of God in his life. And he begins to sink. Doubting the word of God is a sure recipe for failure. But the thing that Peter did right was he cried out to the Lord. He lifts up this three-word prayer. Lord, save me. Now, again, think about it. When you step off the edge of the pool into the water, or you step off the dock at Donner Lake into the water, right? How much time passes before you're in over your head? I mean, things happen pretty quick, right? Peter doesn't have time to, to you know, for a, uh, oh, holy son of God, most high, I beseech thee for thine aid in my current situation. May you find it in your love and mercy to come to the aid of thy servant. I mean, he doesn't have that kind of time. Things are happening fast. He barely has enough time to spit out, Lord, save me. Right? And Jesus responds. Jesus reaches out and he grabs him. And they get back in the boat. And immediately, John's gospel tells us, immediately they're on the other side of the Sea of the Galilee. It was in an instant of time they went from the middle of the sea to their destination. You know, it says a lot about Jesus getting in the boat with you, number one. But it also says a lot about his willingness to save those in need. But here's the thing. Jesus rebukes Peter here. Right? Verse 31, he says, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? There have been times in my Christian walk, maybe you've experienced it too, but I'm in the middle of this storm and it's, it's a big one, right? It's a doozy. And I'm just being tossed back and forth. It's tossing me all over the place. And it seems like that storm is never going to end. You know, I'm completely at the mercy of the storm. And there are times in the middle of those storms that we need encouragement in our faith. And I really appreciate it. When someone comes up to me, he puts his arm around me and he says, it's going to be okay, Gary. It's going to be okay. God is going to see you through this storm. We're praying for you. You know what? It's such a great encouragement to my faith at that moment. But here in the story, we see there are times when we need our doubt to be rebuked. Right? There are times in the storm when I need someone sensitive, sensitive enough to the Lord, sensitive to His heart, led by the Holy Spirit, someone who loves me enough, willing to risk offense 
someone who really loves me to come up to me and say, hey, you need to get over it, right? You have a long history with God and you've experienced his great faithfulness in your life. You're going to get through this. So right now, you need to stop your complaining and stop doubting. Stop doubting his word and his promises which he's made to you and start moving forward. Sometimes the rebuke to my unbelief when someone is guided by the Lord to bring that rebuke feels just as good as the encouragement to my faith does. You know what? We need them both. And the Lord knows how to give them both to us. So perhaps there's some here today, maybe somebody watching online that needs a little gentle encouragement in their faith. The Lord sees you. The Lord's near. The Lord's praying right now for you. And the Lord is going to see you through this. He's going to take you by the hand and lead you as a father leads their son. And maybe there's also one or two of us here that needs to hear a little bit of a rebuke that they may realize, you're right, I shouldn't be letting the, these things drive me the way they've been driving me, right? I need to, a good rebuke for the lack of my faith. And I choose to return to faith in my Savior and in the midst of this storm, right? Both of them feel good under the direction of the Holy Spirit. You know what? If you're not a believer and you're here today or you're watching online, there are storms that are going to come into our life. They're going to come into your life. And these storms, they can be devastating. And my question to you is, who will bring deliverance to you? Who will take you by the hand and lead you through? Whose words will have the final say in your storm? Who will you turn to? You know what? If you're not a believer, there's no one that has the power to get you through the midst of these life-altering storms. And my encouragement to you would be, you know what? Ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Ask Him to come into your life to forgive you of your sins and to give you the power to walk with Him where He promises never to leave you or forsake you, to always be there for you in the midst of the storm. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the encouragement that comes from Your Word, the instruction, Lord, the enlightenment, the understanding that we're never alone. We face nothing, no trial in life, big or small. We never face it alone. Lord, you never leave us or forsake us. You're always with us. Lord, for my brothers and sisters that may be hurting today, on the outside they look like things are going great, but on the inside they're struggling. They're just barely hanging on. Lord, I pray you speak to them, encourage them. Lord, just take them by the hand and lead them. Let them know you're going to see them through. They're going to get to the other side. And maybe for those that don't know you, Lord, I pray, God, you would speak to them 
that without you, there's no forgiveness for their sin. There's only certain fearful indignation. There's just judgment waiting for them. But there's a way to escape that storm, and that's by crying out to you, Lord, save me. And just as quickly as you saved Peter, you saved them, Lord. I pray that you would move on their heart even now to confess your Lord, to confess that they're a sinner, to confess they believe you died on the cross, that they might be saved, that you died, was buried, and resurrected the third day, and right now you're sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for them. Lord, I pray you give them the strength to turn from their sin and turn to you and begin walking with you this wonderful life of salvation. Lord, I just pray for Calvary Chapel Truckee. I thank you for them. I thank you that, God, you've called us here together for such a time as this to teach us that we're never alone. We always have you with us. Lord, I thank you for your word, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.